We love stars. We love being the best. We love our stars. Tim Tebow and Jeremy Lin. We grieve when our stars die. Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson. I'm sure some of you probably were glued to your TV sets as the funeral for Whitney Houston was aired on yesterday. But dare I say that most of you were not watching it because you were grieving with those who grieved. But you watched to see who made it in. You wanted to see who was there. Because we're overly fascinated with celebrity. We like our presidents and our politicians and our pastors to even be celebrities. Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton, T.D. Jakes to Joel Osteen. We like celebrity. It's no more true than the shows that we watch. Isn't it fascinating? It should be anyway that some of the most popular shows on TV are shows where people are trying to identify the next great American idol. Ask my daughter this week, tell me all the shows that are like American Idol on TV. And she ran off a couple of them. I had no idea. There's The Voice, The X Factor. America's got talent. And even the Christians have gotten in the game. And apparently there's a show called Sunday's Best. And from what I hear, it's more like Saturday's Worst. <laughs> but you would be a better judge of that than me. We're always looking for the next great superstar, the next great idol. Christ, however, beloved, you read your Bible faithfully, is not looking for the next idol. Christ is looking for the next great kingdom servant. This is true. What we need to understand is that disciples are not idols. Disciples are not lords. Disciples, like their master, are servants. Disciples, in response to their master, are slaves. Christian discipleship is essentially signing up for servanthood. That's what it is, beloved. The kingdom of God is not populated with stars. And with idols, the rich and the famous of this world, as the world would see it, rather it is populated with those who are willing and ready to give their lives in service, humble service to others. Good service should beget good service. And none have been served as well as the Christian has in and by Jesus Christ. This is what we see this morning as we come to our text in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem Remember, as we have been saying over the last few weeks, he's making his way to Jerusalem for the last time as he is going and anticipating his death and his burial and his resurrection. He is anticipating his passion, his suffering. You can imagine as they're making their way to Jerusalem, imagine the, the drama and the intensity as it is building and the excitement as it is building. As people are hearing that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. But, but this time things seem to be different. There is a groundswell, if you were. There's a march to Jerusalem. Much like the march on Washington. Or the march on Selma in the 60s. 
And the people are gathering around and the people are gathering and following. And as the excitement builds, so too does the fear. So too does the anxiety. So too does the unknown. What is Jesus going to do when he gets to Jerusalem? What are the scribes and the Pharisees going to say when Jesus hits town? What is Pilate and Herod going to do when Jesus gets in the town? And so the fear and the anxiety is growing even as the crowd is swelling as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And in the midst of all this fear and anxiety, the Bible says that Jesus took his disciples and began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is important because they are, they, they are not um, privileged men. They are not superstars. They are not celebrities. They are not among the politically elite. They're just ordinary men. Fishermen, day laborers, they're just ordinary men. And the coming events are going to be so dramatic and even traumatic for them that Jesus knows that he needs to prepare them for what is about to happen. Fellas, you have no idea what is going to happen once we hit Jerusalem. The political intrigue is going to be intense. The religious fervor is going to be great. Believe me, the personal cost is going to be immense. He reminds them that things are going to get dicey here in the next couple of weeks. I want you to understand. I want you to understand that however dicey it gets, it's all within the sovereign plan of God. And all of it, all of it, James and John and Peter, Andrew and the rest, all of it has implications for the kingdom of God, for discipleship, and for servanthood. Jesus taught them and showed them that he was not just the king that they're hoping he would be when he gets to Jerusalem, but more importantly, he was, as they must be, a servant. A servant of God. A servant of his people. And when you examine this text, you see this manifested. Jesus demonstrates this servanthood in three ways. He shows his disciples and he tells his disciples that he is the suffering servant. He shows and tells his disciples that he is the sympathetic servant. Then he tells them that ultimately he is the sacrificing servant. And so they must be also. This idea of the suffering servant. Jesus told his disciples that once they get to Jerusalem that he the son of man would be delivered over to death. And this is not the first time that Jesus told them this. As they've been making their way to Jerusalem for some time now, this is the third time in three chapters. Back in, 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 in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus tells them that I'm going to Jerusalem, boys, but this time I'm going to be handed over unto death. They will kill me, but I will raise again, and I will be, I will be risen again in three days. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, he, re, he reiterates the fact 
We're going to Jerusalem, guys, and, and, and this time things are going to be a little different. I'm going to die. But have no fear. I will be raised again in three days. But this time in Mark chapter 10, he gives them a little more detail. They were all going to Jerusalem. But only Jesus was going there to suffer and to die. Because he is the one promised to be the suffering servant. Promised to be the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 3. The prophet Isaiah prophesies concerning the Messiah, the anointed one of God who was to come. He was despised and rejected, it says in verse 3 of chapter 53 of Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and, and griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is the prophecy that came through the prophet Isaiah. Proclaiming to the nation, proclaiming to the world as it it was. That the servant of God, the Messiah of God would come into the world. But he would come as a suffering servant. This is what Jesus wanted to remind his disciples of. And so he tells his disciples. I'm going to Jerusalem. He says he would be despised, condemned to death, handed over to death, mocked, despised as it were. Not only despised, he would be wounded, spit upon, flogged, and beaten. Isaiah says that he would be slaughtered. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed like a sheep prepared for slaughter. And not a mumbling word, not a mumbling word is he going to say. But know this too, that he who is despised, he who is rejected, he who is wounded, he who is slaughtered is also going to be vindicated. For he is going to be restored. He is going to rise on the third day. Why, Jesus, why? Why must he suffer? He must do this, beloved, because this is the will of God for him. This is the sovereign plan for the Messiah of God, for the messenger of God, the servant of God. For it is the plan of God that he would be handed over. In fact, it was God himself who handed him over. But not only was it God himself who handed him over, Isaiah 53 and verse 10 tells us that it was God himself who inflicted the wounds. And it pleased the father to crush him. It pleased God. To bruising. And yet it would also be God. 
who would raise him again. Now, this is so important that we understand Jesus and the sovereignty of God in the times of suffering. Jesus here is reminding us that just as it was impossible for Jesus to not suffer, so it would be impossible for him not to be raised from the dead. That the call of God upon the servant of God to suffer is not to suffer in a vacuum. The call of God's servant to suffer is to not suffer meaninglessly. But he who suffers on account of God, he who suffers on account of the gospel will in time also be vindicated. Will also in time be raised This is the will of God for all his servants. Jesus took comfort in that his suffering was God's will. But he also took comfort in knowing that the God who has called him to suffer is the God who will raise him up again. That is the comfort of Jesus, that should be the comfort of all God's servants. That should be your comfort and my comfort as well. If I thought for a moment, beloved, that my suffering and discomfort and and distress in this world came from anywhere other than God, what hope, what comfort What security would I have? If I thought for a moment that the afflictions of this world came anywhere but from the sovereign hand of God, what comfort and security and hope could I have that God would be able to raise me out of them? The only reason That the servant of God can speak so confidently in the midst of the suffering is because the servant of God knows that suffering and pain is not the final word from God. This too shall pass. For Christ, it would be three days. For you, it might be three weeks, three years. Three decades. But however long it is, know that he will raise you up again. Because the servant of God never suffers meaninglessly. Never. This is the reason why you can take comfort, beloved, in eternal life. It's because just like life right now, with all of its bumps and its bruises, is in the sovereign hand and the good plan of God for his people. Jesus understood the servant of God must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. His disciples had yet to understand that. The question this morning is, do we, do we? He was a suffering servant, but not only was he the suffering servant, the Bible here says also that he's a sympathetic servant. The suffering sympathetic servant. Now, unfortunately, as with previous times, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. This is the third time that he told them, I'm the suffering servant. I'm the suffering Messiah. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. 
But for the third time, they still didn't get it. Disciples didn't understand the meaning of this suffering servant. But instead, like they had done in verse in chapter 9 and verse 34, they began to debate amongst themselves. If Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he must be going there to establish something. The kingdom of God is coming. It's getting ushered in. Which one of us is going to be first? Which one of us is going to be great? Who's going to have the primary seats in the kingdom? But unlike chapter 9 and verse 34, where they're debating this among themselves, James and John get together and they figure they're going to get to jump on the other guys. They say, enough of this debating with Peter and Andrew and the rest of the guys. Let's go talk to Jesus. So they get to jump on the guys. And they seek to get close to Jesus. And they make an arrogant unsympathetic, even selfish and pathetic request. And yet rather than rebuke them, Jesus, the suffering servant, becomes the sympathetic servant. Notice, notice that. That James and John, they heard Jesus was going to Jerusalem, saying he's going to Jerusalem. And they see the crowds gathering and Jesus talks about confronting the scribes and the Pharisees and all the talk of the kingdom must be coming to a head. So they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we desire. Seems like an odd request, doesn't it? He is the teacher. They are the pupils. He is the master. They are the subjects. This is a strange request. Now, you know, my kids are bold, but they're not that bold. They got a little more savvy than that to come up to their dad and say, Dad, we want you to do for us whatever we desire you to do. That may be in their heart. But here, James and John. Make this forward demand. Matthew Henry says, we had better leave it to him, namely Jesus, to do for us whatever he sees fit. And then in light of Ephesians chapter 3 and and verse 20, he will do even more than you desire. But alas, the disciples didn't understand this as of yet. And so Jesus, in sympathy, looks at them and says, what do you want me to do for you? What would you have me to do for you? And they respond and say, grant to us to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory. And they see Jesus not as a suffering servant, but they see Jesus as the conquering king. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, or better yet, Jesus is going to Washington. And Jesus is going to be president. And since we've been close to the campaign, since we've been faithfully serving in the campaign along the way, Jesus, when you begin to put your cabinet together, James says, I want the vice presidency, and maybe you can give John the secretary of state. As you are putting together your line of succession, Jesus, remember us. As if the kingdom of God was on a first come, first serve basis. Their request is arrogant. Their request is simple. It is selfish. It is unsympathetic to the suffering servant. In fact, it is just plain ignorant. And yet, our Lord is sympathetic. He's sympathetic. 
The suffering servant is also the sympathetic servant. And instead of rebuking them, he raises a question to them. And he says, can you drink my cup? Can you receive my baptism? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And what is that cup, beloved? It is a cup of wrath. It is a cup of wrath against sin, as it says in Psalm 75 and verse 8. It is the wrath of God poured out against sin. Can you drink of that cup? Or can you receive the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50 that it is a terrible baptism. It is a baptism of being immersed in misery. Of being immersed in suffering. Of being immersed in the mission of God for redemption's sake. It would be a bitter cup that Jesus would drink. So bitter that he would go on to say in Mark chapter 14. That he wished that he would not have to drink it. Because it would be so bitter. Can they be baptized in his suffering? Can they drink the cup of his passion and pain? The obvious answer to this question should have been no. No, no. But in arrogance and in presumption and in grand campaign slogan fashion, they say, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. In other words, whatever it takes, Jesus, whatever it takes to get to the high seats, we want to do it. Whatever it takes to be considered great in your kingdom, to be considered amongst the best in your kingdom whatever it takes Jesus we want to do it and Jesus again is sympathetic he looks at them perhaps that he had looked at the rich young ruler previously looks at them with compassion and and sympathy and, and love Knowing, knowing what they don't know. And that is all that they will have to go through for the sake of the gospel. All that they will endure for his name's sake. All that being his disciple would eventually cost them. Jesus knows what they don't know. And so he says to them, you will drink my cup and you will be baptized with my baptism because he knows that all those who truly follow him will suffer as he has suffered he knows that the that the pupil is no better than the teacher he knows that the students are no better than the master he knows that if they persecuted jesus they will also persecute his disciples they thought they were going to jerusalem for the glory And Jesus knew that they were going to Jerusalem for the cross. And he also knew that though he was to get up on the cross, his disciples would have their own crosses to bear. Here we see a Savior who is sympathetic even in our folly. Here we see a savior who is not untouched by our sin. And yet rather than condemn them, he consoles them. Even in their foolishness, they have a sympathetic savior. Don't miss that. 
Don't miss that because don't think for a moment that you are any less foolish than the disciples were. And the comfort in it all is that even in our pathetic, selfish attitude, our Christ remains a compassionate, sympathetic Savior. The other disciples were indignant, weren't they? But not Jesus. Why? Because Isaiah again in chapter 42 and verse 3 reminds us that this suffering servant is also the sympathetic servant because a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not put out. Beloved, what a comfort it is to know that others may condemn us, but Christ doesn't. Others may misunderstand us, but Christ doesn't. Isn't it a glory and a blessing to know that we have a Savior who, though he is no longer in the flesh, yet he sympathizes with the fact that we are. Richard Sibbs said this, speaking of Christ, his advancement has not made him forget his own flesh. Though he was freed from passion, yet not from compassion toward us. He's not. That's why the writer of Hebrews is going to say, since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He sympathizes. Because he is not just a suffering servant. He's a sympathetic one. He looks upon our needs, our folly, our selfishness, and he pleads. He pleads for our mercy. And when others would condemn us for our folly, Christ consoles us. He is the suffering servant. He is the sympathetic servant. And ultimately, he is the sacrificing servant. Christ does not condemn James and John for wanting to be first. For the problem, beloved, is not the desire to be greatness. Desire for greatness is is not the problem. But the problem is how we measure it. Jesus does not condemn them for their desire to be great. But he desires that they would reorient their greatness, their understanding of greatness and their thinking of greatness away from the kingdom of the world and reorient it toward the kingdom of God. And Jesus not only declares the way of greatness, but he shows it. And notice what he says in verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Greatness in the kingdom of God, beloved, is not the one who has a star on the walk of fame. Greatness is the servant. It's not the celebrity. It's the slave. Jesus tells the disciples, if you want to be great, don't worry about the left hand and the right hands of power. Don't be impressed with worldly success and fame. Love the world judges success and, and greatness by books and billboards. By CDs and downloads. By likes on Facebook, by followers on 
Twitter. But greatness in the kingdom of God, greatness in the kingdom of God is not those who have their names in lights. It is not those who have books on the store shelves. It is not those who have their face on billboards or who sing before large crowds or who preach at large mega conferences. It's the ungodly. This is a secular worldly way of thinking of greatness. You may be impressed with the next great American idol. But God is not. Jesus says greatness is measured in two ways. Servants and slaves. Servants and slaves. Servants and slaves. And this is contrary to the way the world moves and shakes. And this is reminding us once again that the ethic of the kingdom of God It's so violently in contrast with the ethics and the kingdoms of this world that you cannot be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of this world. They are so diametrically opposed to one another. Jesus says, If anyone will be great in this, in the kingdom of God, he'd be a servant. The Greek word there is diakonos. It means servant. It means minister. It even means deacon. These are those who are willing to to see a need and meet it. And you don't have to ask them. They're looking for opportunities to to serve and they see a need and they meet it. And though in the church has has risen, risen up an office that is designated to this service and we call them deacons. And as we have looked around the congregation in the last couple of weeks and we know that your deacon nominations are due in next Sunday. If you haven't done that already, please email those to the church office. What Jesus has in mind here is not the office of deacon. He has the idea of a servant. And here it is meant as one who serves. It is the calling of all disciples. And they can serve. It was Dr. King who said, anyone can be great because anyone can serve. Young or old, rich or poor, service is priced over wealth. Service is priced over knowledge. Service is priced over power. Service is even priced over freedom. In the kingdom of God, what ranks first? Is service. Except. There is one. Even greater. Than the servant. Servants. Are great. But Jesus says. That slaves. Are greater. If anyone would be great. In the kingdom of God. And amongst you he would be. Your diakonos. But if anyone would be first among the diakonos, then he would be doulos, a bond servant, a slave, those who are willing to abandon all for the sake of Christ. Those who are willing to relinquish all rights to recognition. Those who are willing to relinquish all rights they think they have to appreciation in this life for the sake of the gospel and Christ Jesus. 
those who see themselves as completely unworthy, not only of Christ, but unworthy to serve in the kingdom. In fact, this is how the apostles would learn to refer to themselves. Not as diaconus. To read in the Bible, the disciples and the apostles referred to themselves as doulos. Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 refers to himself as doulos, a slave of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, he says that we are your doulos, your slaves. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, again, he refers to himself as the slave of Christ. James in James chapter 1 and verse 1 refers to himself, even though he was the brother of Christ, refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Apparently, eventually, even Peter gets it because Peter refers to himself not as diakonos, but as doulos, a slave of Christ. Jude in Jude 1 refers to himself as doulos, a slave. Of Christ. In fact, an interesting thing is that in Acts chapter 4, as the Christians are gathered there following the persecution, they are gathered and they begin to pray. And in their prayer, they refer to themselves collectively as the slaves of Jesus. As if that wasn't enough. Here's the most amazing reality of it all. That in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 7. In verse 6. Jesus refers to himself. The Bible refers to Jesus. As a doulos who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men, be found in human form. Jesus himself, comes, leaves the glories of heaven, knowing that who he is, that he is God of very God, leaves heaven and takes upon the form on earth, not of a king, not of a ruler, but that of a slave to serve the purposes of God. And his people. Understand this beloved. We are never more Christian. Than when we are serving. We are never more Christian. Than we, when we are serving. We never understand the gospel more. Than when that gospel motivates us to serve. And likewise. We are never more unchristian. Than when we are refusing to serve. Nor are we more ignorant of the gospel than when we insist on not serving but ourselves being served. In fact, to drive this point home to his disciples, Jesus pointed to himself. You want to understand what I'm talking about? Look to Jesus. To make the point, Jesus points to himself. And so this morning, to make the point, that's what I want to do. I don't want to point you to the elders. 
I don't want to point you to the deacons. I'm not even going to point you to Ruth. I want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you to Jesus. For Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Two questions. Two questions I want us to contemplate this morning as we close. One, why are you serving? What a joy it is to be in a church where so many do serve. When there's so many things that need to be done. And though we have few hands, how joyful it is to be in a church where people are willing to serve. To be the church on time in order to set up. To be willing to stay after in order to, to break down. To be willing to serve in the nursery. To be willing to sing. To be willing to play. To be willing to open up their homes. To be willing to give. What a joy it is to be in a place where people are so willing to serve. And how encouraging that is to your leaders that you are so willing to do that. Here's the question. Why? Why are you serving? Well, someone might say, well, I'm serving because that's what Jesus did. And I want to suggest to you that there is a greater reason than that. Don't simply serve because that's what Jesus did. But serve because of what Jesus has done. Why are you serving? Because Christ has so faithfully saved me. Because Christ has so faithfully served me. He has given me life and joy. He has rescued me from the trap of human achievement. He has rescued me from the downward spiral of seeking to be first. He has freed me from being a servant to sin. And now I delight more than anything else to serve him. Because I have been redeemed. Because he has saved me. Because he has given me eternal hope. Because he has promised you an eternal reward in heaven. That's why you serve. Because, not because of what would Jesus do. But because of what Jesus has done. Second question, why are you not serving? There are those here who are faithfully serving, beloved, but dare I say that there are those here also this morning who are doing nothing but sitting. Why is your only interest in the church on Sunday morning? Why is it that you would come to the church and wait for someone to play for you? Wait for someone to pray for you. Wait for someone to sing for you. Wait for someone to preach for you. Have you not heard the call of the gospel? Has not Christ changed your life? Have you not a desire to have an interest in more than just sitting on Sunday morning, but having an interest in the gospel itself? Why are you not serving? Why are you just sitting? Have you not heard your name called in the gospel of Christ? Have you not been the recipient of his amazing love and mercy and grace? Have you come to him by faith? Have you gone by way of the cross and see there a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Whose blood was spilled for your relief. Who took your sorrow and your pain. And not for a moment did he complain. 
If that is true, then why don't you just sit? Do you not see what a wonderful sacrifice? Do you not see what a wonderful servant? Do you not see what a wonderful Savior? Beloved, the call of the disciple is not for his or her name or face to be on the billboard. Disciple desires nothing more than to take up the basin and wrap the towel around him or herself and to wash the feet of the saints. That's greatness in the kingdom of God, beloved. Don't desire. It is a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand to run after the world's greatness, to desire to be the next great idol, to seek and to pursue celebrity, to be thought much of in the eyes of people. It is a fool's errand. But it is faithful discipleship to be willing to bow down and offer yourself in service and in love to your brothers and sisters. It is the only proper response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have been saved, you serve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning realizing that our hearts are so prone to wonder, so prone to chase after the things of this world. And so we come humbly thanking you for the reminder in your word that those who would be great are those who would serve. Oh, Father, convict us and make us servants. Indeed, make us slaves of our King. Glorify yourself in our hearts and even in this church that we would be a place known the gospel that moves us to serve our God and each other. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.